said, my name is Nathan Barzi. Uh, I'm an associate pastor at Christ the King in Cambridge. Um, it's a pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning. It's a, it's a privilege. I'm grateful um, that I've been invited here to bring uh, God's word, to read it, uh, and to preach it. Uh, before I read, just a couple words of, of introduction uh, on what we're going to be talking about today. This summer, I've been going through a series um, in the life of David. And David is, other than Jesus himself, is the most fully developed character in all of Scripture. It's the longest narrative that we have. And everywhere, uh, all over the Bible, the Gospels, uh, the New Testament, Jesus is constantly referred to as the son of David. And the idea you're supposed to be getting when you see that is that if you really want to understand who Jesus is, um, whether you're new to Christianity, thinking about it for the first time, or whether you've been a Christian your whole life, if you're really wanting to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand who David is. Uh, and so it's, it's important to look at his life. Uh, to look at uh, the, the psalms that he wrote uh, and think about him. The passage I'm going to be preaching from this morning is the one that comes at the very beginning of that story, the very beginning of 1 Samuel. And actually, it's not about David himself. It's a couple generations before he's born. Uh, it's about a young woman named Hannah. Um, the writer is, is it, it's as though he's saying, if you really want to understand David, then you have to understand this woman Hannah. So, if we want to understand Jesus, we have to understand David, we have to understand Hannah. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, uh, is this story um, of, this, of this woman. So, I'll invite you now, wherever you are, to stand um, as I read our scripture this morning, which is 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 20. And I'm reading from the New International Version. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Ziphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her, so she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips are moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat, wherever you are. Now, what I just read to you was the story of Hannah. Um, there's also, immediately following that, uh, in chapter 2, almost immediately following that, um, a song that Hannah sings. And I'm going to be talking this morning as much about the song as I am about the story. Uh, for sake of time, we didn't read the uh, the song, but if you've got a Bible, be ready to flip back and forth uh, between chapter one and, and chapter two. Um, this song um, is a perfect way to begin David's story uh, because the song uh, has three main points, and these three points really are the three points of David's whole story that continues throughout First and Second Samuel. Um, here are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. They come right out of the song, but they're also illustrated in the story. The first one is that God is a God who lifts up the lowly. The second is that God is at work despite the wickedness of mankind. And the second one is that there's this hope. There's this hope undergirding the other two points, and it's not an abstract hope. It's a very concrete, specific hope for a king, for a messianic king, for a king anointed by God for his purposes. So God is a God who lifts up the lowly, God is at work, despite the wickedness of mankind, and it's all regarded by hope for a messianic true king. So let's take a look at these in turn. Um, the verse in the song that particularly conveys this idea that God lifts up the lowly is, is verse 8 of chapter 2. Hannah sings, God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, let's talk about the lowliness of Hannah. Uh, let's talk about how it is that she's so able to identify uh, with this need to be lifted up uh, by, by God. Hannah, uh, we read, uh, is one of two wives of this man, Elkanah, right? Um, it's likely, because she's mentioned first, that she is the first uh, of, of his two wives. It's also likely that the text tells us that she's not able to have children. And it's also likely that the reason that Elkanah had married a second woman was because Hannah couldn't have children. Um, in other words, Elkanah had, had married Penina in order to have children um, because Hannah uh, wasn't able uh, to have them. And we see the anguish that this causes Hannah. Although 
the translations that we have um, don't really do justice to it. Uh, I think the translation we read um, said that Panini used to provoke um, Hannah. One of the other translations says that she used to irritate her. Those words are too weak. This word that's getting translated as provoke or irritate, its literal meaning is it's a storm. There's like a thunderstorm in Hannah's heart. The other places in the Bible where this word is used, um, it gets translated as, as convulsions or, or storm, literally a, a, a storm. Um, Hannah is not simply irritated. Um, she's not just provoked. She is convulsed. Um, everything in her is in chaos uh, because she's unable to have children. Now, why, why would that be? Well, I have sat uh, with, with many women, uh, with many uh, married couples, uh, prayed with them during periods of infertility. Uh, and I have seen uh, the pain uh, that is experienced um, by uh, a husband and wife, and often particularly uh, the wife who longs to have children um, and for whatever reason can't. Um, and it's, it's difficult to compare to anything else, that, that longing uh, to be a mother, uh, to be unable uh, to, to, to do that. And so certainly Hannah is experiencing that. Um, and if that's something that has been part of, of your story, um, then, then, then that's something you can identify with uh, and see in Hannah. But, but for Hannah, it's deeper. It's even deeper than, than, than that. Because you see, in Hannah's culture, um, this is, this is an agricultural, it is a labor-intensive uh, culture. It is one in which the survival of a family, and even the survival of a city or, the, or a nation, depends on having people to work, uh, on having children. Uh, you need to have children in your family who are able to do the work, uh, who are able to take care of you when you get older, Survival itself depends on having children. And so women who were able to have lots of children in this culture are treated like heroes. Um, they're, they're the most productive members of a society. Think about the way our society looks at somebody like an Elon Musk uh, or a Steve Jobs, right? It, it's, it's a little bit like that. On the other hand, a woman who's unable to have children, that culture would tell her that she had no value at all. She meant nothing. And Hannah has internalized that message. Hannah has, has, has taken that in. Uh, and she's in convulsions. She, uh, she, she's in the midst of a storm because her culture is telling her uh, that she means absolutely nothing. Um, by the way, before you hear that and think to yourself, oh, how primitive. What a backwards culture that would treat women as though their only value were that they could have children. Yes, that's problematic. Of course, that's not what we want. But let's not adopt an air of superiority over a culture like that. Their culture didn't struggle with eating disorders the way that ours does. If their culture was telling women that their value was only in that they could have children, our culture tends to tell women from the time they're born through the images that surround us. Every time we walk through a grocery store checkout, um, that if a woman doesn't look a certain way, that she has no value. It's not really a matter of our being superior to theirs. We just have a different idol, uh, a different way of oppressing, uh, in this case, women, 
uh, in our in our culture uh, than than they had. Um, and this tells us something very important about cultures in general, uh, is that this is what they do. Every culture, every civilization, every city has always zeroed in on something. Something that you have to have, you have to be. Uh, you have to look the right way. Um, you have to be able to produce the right things. You have to have the right education or status, or you are nothing. Um, this is what cultures do. This is when we talk about idolatry. Um, this is what we're talking about. Uh, this is this is the power of, of an idol. Um, and it's very interesting how different idols uh, can work alongside of each other. Um, look at what Elkanah says uh, to his to his wife. He seems to have good intentions, right? He comes to Hannah, uh, and he says, uh, "Why are you downcast?" He says, "Isn't my love?" Uh, worth 10 children to you. Now, what is he saying there? Again, he seems to have good intentions. But basically what he's saying is, replace the idol that the culture is giving to you that says your meaning is only in having children. Replace that with my love. Find your meaning there instead. But this would just be to replace one idol with another. And it's not going to work. And we know it's not going to work. We don't have to speculate about this. We can look right in the text and see that this doesn't work. Because our text actually has not one, but, but two oppressed women in it. Um, look at Penina. You know, there's a reason that verse 6 comes after verse 5 um, in chapter 1. Verse 5 said that, remember, Hannah, or Elkanah was giving Hannah a double portion because he loved her. And right away we hear that year after year, um, Penina provokes her, irritates her, right? Do you see what's going on? Hannah longs to have children and can't, and, and for that reason is in the midst of this storm. But she does have the love of her husband, and Panina sees that. And Panina sees that she doesn't have that, and for that reason uh, is, is, is provoking Hannah. We have, we have two women in this, in this chapter, um, both of whom longing for something, uh, that they believe will satisfy them, uh, that, they, that they don't have. Now, the turning point in this story, um, the turning point in this story of God lifting up the lowly. So we're looking here at what is the lowliness of Hannah, and what we're, what we're saying is that her lowliness consists in um, this lack of children uh, that, she, that she doesn't have. The turning point in this story comes at verse 9. Of, of chapter one, uh, when there's one year where she stands up and she goes and she does something very important, and that is that she goes to the temple. Uh, she goes to pray. She goes to take her storm, her chaos, her mess to the Lord, to take it there in prayer. See, why is it that after this prayer, Hannah rises up in verse 18, and she's happy, and she's able to eat again. She wasn't able to eat before this. Um, but when she rises up from prayer, uh, she's able to eat. Here's what's happened when she's taken this mess to the Lord in prayer. What she's done is she's rejected these idols. Society has told her her value is only in having children. 
Elkanah offers her his love as a substitute. And Hannah says, no, neither of those, neither of those is ultimately going to satisfy. There's only one thing that will. I have to go to the Lord himself. Um, I have to go to the one uh, who alone uh, is worthy of my worship. The one who alone um, can give me peace. Notice, you know, the story ends with her having a child, but she has this peace before she has the child. Because she's receiving that peace, not from the child that God gives her, but from God himself. Now, here's the, the, the problem that we face is this. Um, that if I tell you, okay, your idols, whatever they are, you know, whether it's beauty uh, or whether it's money or your job, um, whatever it is that you're looking to satisfy you that ultimately will leave you empty. Um, if I simply tell you that won't satisfy you, only God will, so, so make the switch. Um, that's not going to work. I can't, just, I can't just tell you. Um, I mean, I, I could. You know, go ahead, try. Um, stop worshiping your job. Stop worshiping money. Go ahead and change that for the worship of the true God. Actually, since this is, this is on YouTube, you know, you could pause this for a while and take your time, right? I don't even have to wait. Um, it doesn't matter. No amount of time is enough for you to just make that switch. We have to go on. We have to see more uh, of what Hannah is seeing. We have to see more um, of just who it is uh, that, she's, that she's praying to. Um, and this takes us to the, the second point uh, in, in Hannah's song. And that is that God is a God who is at work uh, despite the wickedness of mankind. In Hannah's song, verse 9 of chapter 2, she sings, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Now this, if you, if you look at this song, um, this is kind of an abrupt shift. Up to this point, she's been focusing on uh, the problem that she faces, um, praying for a child, and suddenly she makes this shift to something that has to do with God caring for his people and defending them. She goes from her personal problem to this larger problem of, of the people of God. There are some commentators that even think that this isn't even really Hannah's words, that some later editor has kind of tacked this on. I think they do that, though, because we tend to read this through our Western, rather individualistic eyes. Um, and for us, it's really an abrupt thing to go from my problems to the problems of a people, the problems of a nation, the problem of a world. Um, but if we let Hannah tell her own story, all right, if, we, if, we, if we let her voice speak here, and we let her tell her story and sing her song in her own way, we learn something really important, really practical. This, this might be the most practical thing uh, that I'm going to say this morning. Um, so if you're taking notes and you want to write down one thing, Hannah is here teaching us something very important about how to pray in the midst of our storms. Because what Hannah is doing in making this jump from her personal problem to the people, she's praying with what we might call theological imagination. Theological imagination is the capacity to see your story, as important as it is, as valuable uh, as it is to God, to see your story 
in the midst of this much bigger story. Uh, in, the midst, in the midst of a story um, that starts before you and ends after your lifetime, um, that's bigger than just your time or your, or your place. Um, what Hannah is doing is she's remembering that God has always identified himself as a God who sees and who hears and who remembers. Um, that's what started off the whole Exodus story, when God came to free his people from slavery in Egypt. He says, I have seen, I have heard, and I remember my people. And, God, and, and Hannah, knowing that that's the kind of God she has, knows that she can pray her problems, and her problems are taken up uh, into the prayers of her people, to a God who sees and who hears and who remembers. This is a really important thing to be able to do when we pray, um, is to be able to, to see that, that bigger cosmic context uh, for our own for our own uh, problems you know given that it's kind of it's kind of tragic and it's it's meant to be a little bit funny um, but it's also sad the way that Eli reacts to this right Eli the priest is there watching this and he sees her praying and he thinks well this woman has just had too much to drink and he any he, he chastises her right um, you know, and he later kind of, you know, corrects himself and, and, and makes amends and he blesses her and that's, and that's good. But when I read that, um, so I said earlier that I've been preaching through the life of David throughout this summer. So um, I first preached this sermon back on June 7th. Um, June 7th was, that was less than two weeks um, after the murder of George Floyd. So it's a time when our nation um, was just... I mean, just just beginning where we still are to be in the throes of these convulsions, right? Um, you know, really having thrust in our face this just horrific example of this systemic, violent, racial injustice um, that we deal with. And, and I really benefited, as, as I was personally, so this was only two weeks in um, after that had happened, and I, as I was personally trying to process, like, how do I think about this and, and, and how do I preach? How does the church need to speak? And how do we respond uh, to, this, to this situation? I really benefited from a sermon I found from the Reverend Esau Macaulay, who is an African-American priest in the Anglican Church of North America. And on May 31st, the, the previous Sunday, which was also Pentecost Sunday, um, that was the first Sunday, after George Floyd was murdered, um, he preached on Pentecost. He preached on Acts 2. And I was really drawn to these words. He was, he was looking at the, the part of the story where, remember in Acts 2, the Spirit is given and the apostles preach in such a way that people from all over the world who speak all these different languages all hear the message in their own language. And it says, it says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. In other words, they're just drunk. Here's what Reverend Macaulay said. This is from his sermon. He says, the nations are being drawn together and there are two responses. One, they're just drunk. Or two, what does this mean? One response refuses to acknowledge the facts of what's going on and draws upon their known experience to dismiss the work of God. It's just alcohol. But the second asks a deeper question. 
What is God up to in their midst? I'll get back to Pentecost. This is, this is still Reverend Macaulay. Let me say this about the world that's on fire all around us. Some look at the black demands of justice and can only reach for some political explanation. They're just Democrats trying to ruin the church, or they're just theological liberals beholden to Marxism. But maybe those are ways to avoid looking at this thing itself. What are black, Latino, and Asian brothers and sisters really saying? What does it mean? What is God up to? So here's, 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 here's the challenge. And let me say this, by the way. Um, I'm a guest preacher. Um, I don't know a lot of you. Uh, I know some of you, but, but there's many of you uh, who don't know me and I don't know you. And I, and I know that what that means is I, I don't have the kind of relationship that's really necessary to really wrestle through the hard stuff. But I think as long as I'm standing in this pulpit, every time I take up the word, one of my jobs um, is to work through the hard stuff that we are all sharing in common right now and to do it in light of this text, to do it in light of God's word. And this text that we have this morning that reminds us that God is a God who lifts up the lowly and who is at work despite the wickedness of mankind, that gives to us a challenge. And, I, and, and here I'm particularly speaking to those of you who look like me uh, and who have grown up um, in white evangelical circles and have become hard of hearing. Our God is a God who sees. He's a God who hears. He's a God who remembers. And right now, there are members of our body, the body of Christ, there are members of our body that are saying very clearly, we can't breathe. And the challenge to us, do we hear them? Do we see them? Do we remember? And the tendency is to look at that and to say, well, the worst tendency is to say that's not my problem. But even if you don't say that, the tendency is to look at racial injustice in this country and just the complexities, how it works its way vertically through all levels of our society and historically across time, and just say, this is just too big. It's just too much. It's overwhelming. Uh, and to want to walk away and not listen. And that is where we need, we need, if we're going to avoid that horrible mistake, we need the third thing that Hannah points us to in her song, which is this hope. Not an abstract hope, not just I hope this will all work out, but a very concrete, specific hope for a savior, a king who is coming. Because Hannah's song, it points us at another song. Hannah's story points us at another story, right? There's another story that begins with another young, insignificant, poor woman who shouldn't have been able to have children, not because she was barren, but because she wasn't married. She'd never been with a man. And an angel shows up and tells Mary, you're going to have a son, and his name will be Jesus. And he's going to save the people from their sins, the individual ones, and also the ones that are, have worked their way into every institution and system in our society. Everywhere that sin rears its head, Jesus is going to be the Savior. And Mary sings a song 
that looks just like Hannah's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. You know, when, when Hannah, at the very end of her song, says uh, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, that word anointed there is the first use of the word anointed in the Old Testament. Um, that word is going to get used a lot more in David's story. Uh, Saul will be anointed, David will be anointed, but this is the first one. And you might know that the word anointed uh, is where the word Messiah comes from. And then Christ is just the Greek translation of Messiah, Jesus Christ, not his last name. It's Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed. Hannah's song is pointing us uh, to this hope. It's so crucial that we don't miss this. This is the key to the whole thing. Um, this is the key to exchanging our idols, okay? You and I, on our own strength, are not strong enough. Our hearts are weak. Uh, we can't uh, change what our hearts truly love without the work of God's Spirit. Um, you and I, facing up to something like systemic racial injustice uh, in our nation, or, or just in our neighborhood, um, it's too big. We're not strong enough. The hope of the Christian is not that he or she is strong enough to overcome the idols and to overcome the evil and to overcome the injustice. It's that we know one who is. It's that we've been attached by faith uh, to one who is. So this song can teach us how to pray for times such as these. This song can teach us how to pour out our soul because we know one who poured out his soul before God. And if you remember, Jesus poured out his soul before God and he, he uniquely, he alone um, was crushed. But he was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the weight of our sin to the cross. We aren't strong enough, but he was. And to put your faith in Christ, to come to know him, to be related to him, uh, is to be attached uh, to this one who defeated sin, who defeated death, who rose to new life, is to have life in him. So this church, every church, every week, we issue this same invitation. If you don't know Jesus already, uh, if you've never uh, considered him, if you've never taken a look at who he is, um, do so. Come and meet one uh, who's stronger than you are, uh, who can bear the weight of your sin and your shame, uh, who can give you hope and who can give you strength uh, to look evil in the world and in yourself in the eye and find victory. Can we pray together? Let's pray.